Welcome back to the 227th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two that have to do with business and how they are impacted legally. One talking about Kevin O'Leary saying he's staying out of New York after the Trump ruling, and a way more interesting one, which is going to be the front end of our stories today, which is how the Supreme Court could change the regulation game and how the federal government actually goes about regulating and how people sue them. And then an interesting article finishing off about how the Democratic majority has changed. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, for a long time, regulation was started and stopped in the uh, presidential, the executive branch. And, of course, normally... It started, the actual process, the allowing of the rule, the creation of the agency, started in the legislature. But a lot of the actual rulemaking, once it became an agency in the executive branch, is, is mainly staying executive. And there's been lots of different ways forward when trying to remove previous regulations. Uh, but under Trump, when he said, okay, for every one we issue, we want to peel back two, that was long, it took a while, you know, you have to rely on the people within these different administrations or different agencies to come up and say, hey, you can cut this regulation, which maybe could cut their job eventually if that falls underneath their purview, if it's all environmental regulation, and they're like, um, well, you know, this one could be cut, but please don't, because it may make uh, part of my job obsolete, so you could see how that approach wouldn't necessarily work, so now there's a more legal-focused approach coming in from different activist groups, different uh, conservative-minded people who are trying to either take an originalist approach or even just advocate through law for their point of view on how to actually limit or even roll back some federal regulations. So... We have an article from Slate, and you know, throw your comments down there in the comment section. We have an article from Slate describing what's going on here with a new case that hasn't necessarily gotten the most coverage as of right now. Things could very well change by the time this episode goes out. It's only a day behind, but still, for all I know, a huge revelation happens in the case in the middle of the night or a little bit later today because I do record these pretty early in the morning. So, the headline reads, This under-the-radar Supreme Court case could wreak havoc on society. And, you know, wreak havoc is um, it's, it's strong wording from Slate. There's no doubt about that one. But you can definitely see where they would at least be coming from with their point of view that the free market and big corporations, uh, they're going to take advantage of any small benefit, any small loophole, any small advantage that they have in order to get the most out of it and actually make the most money. And I would even say to um, take advantage of the most customers. I don't agree with all of those framings, but you could see how Certain regulations are very important, there's no doubt about that, or at least have had a big impact, 
And Slate has a perspective that a lot of regulations are actually good, that the people that sit there in Washington and are part of the bureaucratic state, even if you don't necessarily like them, they're actually trying to find a solution that will work, not necessarily destroy companies, won't necessarily destroy small businesses, but still keep customers or employees safe or the environment as a whole safe. So they have a different perspective than uh, some people that are probably on the other side of this argument. But it's always interesting to break down where they're coming from, especially when they are one of the only people I've actually seen talking about this one. And here's a part of their opening salvo when they are starting to discuss it a little bit more. If there were any doubt about the Supreme Court's commitment to conservative project of bringing about the destruction of the administrative state, this term will likely lay those to rest. The court has already tied up several potential blockbusters for decisions by the end of June, including two cases that could spell the end of the Chevron deference doctrine and another that could significantly restrict agencies' ability to use administrative law judges in enforcement proceedings. So for those of you who do not know, Chevron deference is basically at the end of the day, the in you know it's a little bit different, but the rulemaking should be made by the administrative agency, and at the end of the day, it really comes down to their discretion how it, things will be put into place, enforced, so on and so forth. So it vests a lot of power in those agencies. And yes, that is a very sloppy, dumbed down version, um, but. You know, sometimes I need things explained to me very, very dumb. So I figure if you don't know what it is, that's probably a very simple way to think about it. So the authors coming at it here and the conservative advocates, uh, lawyers who don't like certain rulings or certain uh, principles that the Supreme Court has upheld or pushed in the in previous courts, they have been aiming for Chevron deference. They're at least it's been a part of the conversation for a good four years now, but it's really come to the forefront now that it's actually possible in the last two. I mean, you hear commentators like Ben Shapiro making a lot of fuss about Chevron deference. You even hear people at Breaking Points make comments about Chevron deference. Uh, I, I know Kyle Kalinske definitely made some, and I know I'm probably listing a whole bunch of people that you don't necessarily know who they are or what what they do. Uh, but my point being, it is not something that has escaped the mainstream. It's not something that's completely shoved down there, but that's the idea of getting rid of or keeping Chevron deference overall, not this particular lawsuit. So what is this case going on here? What's the things that it's going to try to change or what is it calling unconstitutional or saying should be illegal, so on and so forth? On Tuesday, the court's conservative supermajority will get to take yet another powerful swing against the administrative state when it hears oral arguments in the case called Corner Post versus Board of Governors. Despite the very real threat it poses, this case has received surprisingly little attention. So, hey, uh, Slate, you don't need to keep calling out the fact that other people aren't talking about it and that you are covering it. You know, you're trying to booster you a little bit. It's okay. It's okay. We get it. You're covering it. Let's get to the issue. Quote, at issue in Corner Post in is a technical debate over who is eligible to bring lawsuits against regulators that agencies issue. The Administrative Procedures Act, which established the general framework for challenging the legal validity of a regulation, provides a statute of limitations of six years after the claim first occurs or accrues. Sorry. So, 
this is one of the issues that's going to be at uh, fall, uh, the center here because they want to have a different way of perceiving it rather than it being six years since the creation of the rule, which is what Slate would say is the obvious and objective way of looking at it. Um, they actually want it to be six years from the violation. So if somebody is uh, has some sort of harm that comes of the regulation and it's five years after the regulation is put in place, they're saying, no, that starts a new timer because this is a, a violation. This is a lawsuit being brought by a claimant from the point that they had a negative effect from this regulation onwards, from the point they're trying to sue, then you have six years. Uh, I think it's an interesting precedent, and basically Slate goes on to argue that it could extend the timeline forever, because in this particular case, there were a whole bunch of grocery stores, corner stores that were represented, and their statute of limitations was coming up, and they added a new corner store who was also aggrieved, but it was created in like 2018. It wasn't a part of the original suit. And now it is a part of the suit. And that's why the question of when can you actually sue or at least complain and take it into court about the regulation? Because if it was six years from the creation of that regulation, then the new store corner uh, shop that they're sorry corner post that they're adding to this lawsuit may not fall within the purview of those six years from the time the regulation was created but if he was aggrieved at any point within the last six years then that would give him precedence in the new legal interpretation and then they would go forward from there so i definitely agree with slate when they say it sounds like a little bit of underhandedness it sounds like a little bit of tactics and it definitely is but that's also why this will be judged upon the lawyers in this case they're trying something creative and if it gets to the supreme court and the supreme court says yeah okay that was very creative of you we understand uh, that reasoning so on and so forth uh, yeah we'll allow it or they're going to be like okay guys we we know that you did a little switcheroo you said oh look here while you were waving your other hand or you were stealing out of our pockets uh, so no we're not going to allow that so if anything, it's a great opportunity to test this out. Um, I would definitely agree with Slate that it is, I mean, let's be clear, Slate doesn't explicitly say it here, but I wouldn't be surprised if they say it's a waste of court dollars to try out crazy new legal theories that sound insane. But hey, if they want to take it up and they want to clarify on this one, which I think is actually something that should be clarified on because the slate does make a good point. If it was such that it was just customary law where you can tack a new plaintiff on every single time, if there's about to be a statute of limitations issue, and you can just tack a new plaintiff on, rather than that plaintiff just starting their own case, they're actually bringing along all the other people that would be outside the uh, statute of limitation in uh, some sort of class action or even in uh, this case where they're talking about regulations. Uh, that could just indefinitely keep it going, going, going. And whether or not that is inherently unconstitutional, whether or not that is inherently bad, we need to leave that up to the legal experts. And when I say leave it up to the legal experts, I mean the Supreme Court. And when I say leave it up to them, 
I mean just accepting the reality that they are the highest court of the land. That doesn't mean that you have to agree. You can challenge this. You can take it into a court. You can try to get different opinions. You can take it up to them and have a different perspective and challenge it from a different angle once again. I'm not saying you can complacently sit there and say, oh, yes, our overlords, the Supreme Court, they tell us what to do 100%. But the reality of the situation is they are the highest court in the land, so you do have to just take what they do on face value, and if you want to fight it, it may take some time, so on and so forth. So... The reason that I really wanted to talk about this is because they say that it's going to completely open up the wild, wild west, where if the statute of limitations is the, the six years from an grievance, from the point that the company that wants to challenge the regulation is hurt by said regulation, then every regulation on the books is definitely up for some sort of legal challenge because they, even if it was passed 100 years ago, they could be hurt by it today, tomorrow, in, you know, 10 years into the future. So that's one perspective for sure. And then there's the other one, which is even if they say, no, okay, the six years really is from the point of issuance, but, 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 we're going to allow this specific case where someone was tacked on to get this in front of us Maybe that sets a different precedence that would allow people to just continue to tack on things in order to make sure the statute of limitations never goes away. And there, let's be clear, if there's a statute of limitations from a crime that took place in uh, 1985 and you reached the statute of limitations 20 years or so, then no, it's completely gone. But if there's a law that says, if this law is broken, you have six years to actually claim damages from something, and there's a new person that gets added into the class action, even though the other people have still reached that uh, limit, they've still hit that point where they can no longer sue because it is past the statute of limitation, and that could be an interesting precedent for sure. So, why is Slate, Slate doing all this besides trying to bring it to people's attention and say, hey, we're looking out for the Supreme Court stuff and nobody else is because they said that multiple, multiple times. Um, the other reason that they are bringing this up is because they are uh, genuinely afraid of a market without reasonable regulations or even just regulations in general. But to give them the benefit of the doubt, I would say reasonable regulations because at the end of the day, at the end of this entire process, they're afraid that all of the regulations are going to get outstripped, overturned, so on and so forth. And I would argue, well, there are regulations that have followed the rulemaking process, that have been in line with the powers assigned to different agencies by the legislator. And then there are also certain agencies in their outlining documents that most definitely have a lot of leeway in the language, which legis the legislator did on purpose, and maybe it's not a bad thing to re-examine those uh, bodies and say, hey, no, this actually falls with outside your purview. This vague language is a little too vague. Maybe we should interpret it this way. The, the thing that I like about this idea, and this is a principle alone, you know, in practical terms, I don't know how it would affect my, my life. I don't know how it would affect the people I care about's lives. I don't know how it would affect the people in my state. And I don't know how it would affect everybody in the country. Because even if you remove a certain regulation, that doesn't necessarily mean that behavior changes. It doesn't necessarily mean that the consequences are immediate, so you can tell anyway. But my point being is, in theory, reducing the amount of bloat, reducing the amount of regulations on the books that can be interpreted for multiple means, and peeling them back after they've had their useful day, 
and reevaluating and passing new ones, I think that should definitely be a normal purview. I honestly don't think it should take the Supreme Court to say, hey, yeah, no, you can kind of challenge these old uh, regulations. I don't even think it should take lawsuits. I think, honestly, every single regulation, every single regulation should have a 10-year period. I think that you have 10 years when this regulation goes on, and then there's a revise and resubmit period, and it allows for, it's a longer period than initial, so maybe you say it goes nine and a half years, and then there's a six-month review and resubmit period where people can re-make comments about it. Then again, this also supposes that people would be very interested, and there have been regulations that I haven't liked that I've gone and looked at the uh, suggestions page or the comments page, and I've made comments, and I just... I haven't even said anything, even though I totally disagree with particular regulations. So it does suppose that we have a very active populace, but I think there could be more control mechanisms in place that actually say, has this regulation had the intended effect? Because if it hasn't had the intended effect, sometimes regulatory agencies will just say, no, okay, you know, it didn't do what we wanted to do. We're just not going to enforce it. But then it could be misused in the future. It could be twisted. So we need to take away as many legal precedents or as many regulatory precedents as possible in order to make sure that the government doesn't just have a broad swath of powers that it could use, even if they don't actively use them anymore, even if they're not relevant, but they could be twisted to uh, other means, which is what you're seeing with certain cases about the, um, remember when I did the Fearless Fund article, if you're a person who listens to multiple of my podcasts and how they're talking about the 1864 Civil Rights Act is how Fearless Fund is violating that. I'm not saying they're not doing that, but my point being, if we have these long-standing things that haven't been revised on in a regulatory sense, not even in a legislative sense, something that was basically just passed by a legislator to start an agency, and then the agency did all the internal work to actually make sure these rules and regulations went out. They didn't all have to be legislatively approved. Imagine if we had a situation like that where, you know, a hundred years ago, something got passed that could be used in a way that, or something got passed under Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson, which wouldn't probably get passed now or wouldn't get put out there as a regulation, and we could still be held liable to it. It's different when it's the legislator, a large segment of the population, chose to do something at the time versus an agency which is just stacked with experts and whoever the president at the time wants to put on to those different agencies. So... That's one aspect of the law and business series, uh, not series, law and business segments that I wanted to do. The next one is just a little bit more jokey. It's a little bit more funny, and it comes from National Review. Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary says he will never invest in New York after Trump verdict. And when I first read that, I was like, oh, interesting, Mr. Wonderful. What is he saying about this? Because he doesn't necessarily get political. And I see him as a bit of a, I don't really care as long as I can you know, operate my business. And if something gets in the way of that, Republican or Democrat, I'm going to talk about it. That's how I see uh, Mr. Wonderful, at least. And when I say, okay, this is, this is a popular person who has a good following, especially in the business world, but even beyond that, uh, you know, a little bit of a charming personality for some people. Some other people find him abrasive. But the point being, he can have a little bit of pull. So I was interested to see what he had to say about some of these topics, or at least this particular aspect about the penalties that were given to Mr. Trump or former President Trump. 
quote, New York Judge Arthur Engeron ordered Trump to pay the massive sum for conspiring, the court ruled, to alter his net worth to receive tax and insurance benefits. The order also prevents Trump from doing business in New York for three years. The decision has the conclusion was the conclusion of a month-long civil fraud trial that New York Attorney General Letitia James brought against the former president, the Trump Organization, and his executives. So whether or not you think this is politically motivated, which Letitia James most definitely campaigned on at least going after Donald Trump, um, I, to be honest, I don't remember her citing any specific statutes that he she knew that he broke beforehand rather than just saying, we're going to keep Donald Trump liable. If there is a clip of that that I have not seen from one of her rallies or just anywhere, honestly, besides after the fact. I don't mean, oh yeah, she got in the office and she said, well, I never I never said I wanted to go after Mr. Trump. Um, I, I, we, I don't believe that, first off. And also, if you have a clip from when she's in office, that's different. Because yes, she has the resources to look for a crime versus beforehand if she's just saying she's going to find a crime. But that is besides the point. So what was the ruling for? Uh, $355 million USD. And that's a huge, scary number for, um, I wouldn't necessarily say Trump, even though, you know, even if you're a billionaire, that's still a big chunk of change. But my point being more that it's actually a very scary and devastating idea for businessmen in New York, which is if you are someone that is not liked, I'm not saying that it was a political persecution, but I'm saying that there have been no people that were hurt from this crime. Uh, the banks got their money back, and the only thing that was really happening there, was, if it was 100% legitimate, which the court ruled that it was, so under their statute, under the way they're viewing it, yes, it was fraud to misclaim something. Uh, there's going to be an appeal, so on and so forth. Uh, actually, I take that back. It's civil, so there may not be a appeal. It may not be worth the money, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um, the point being, yeah, uh, under the way that they're framing it, it is fraud. But nobody was hurt from this. So that seems like a very excessive penalty. It seems as though it's something that is just politically motivated. And also, the barring of Trump from doing business in three for three years in New York, whether or not you think that's right, that is something that's going to disincentivize people from investing and in doing business in New York. Because guess what? They're, even if it's not 100% true, which is the thought that, hey, if they don't like me, if they find some reason not to enjoy my presence, if they want to come after me, they could do this to me as well, because now there's precedent. Even if it wasn't intended to be a attack on Trump for the sake of attacking Trump, if it was 100% legitimate, good-faith effort by the prosecutors and the judge, which a lot of people doubt, but if you truly hold that belief, then even then, there's a precedent for a undercutting for a large sum to be taken out and a direct ban of people from doing business within the state. And you'll be arguing to me, yeah, but uh, Alex, guess what? If they're doing something illegal, then they should be prosecuted. And I do not disagree. I'm not disagreeing with you whatsoever. But if they do something illegal and the penalty is a lot higher, that's going to disincentivize people from doing business there because, one, 
if they view it as a political prosecution, then they're definitely going to be afraid. Even if they don't view it as a political prosecution, uh, maybe these business people do this all the time. This is a new, this is a more novel approach to uh, fraud and trying to say that he's overvaluing his assets and therefore it was a, a fraudulent claim in order to get a lower rate on his loans. So not it's pretty pretty novel in the way that they're going about this. So maybe this is a standard business practice, and that's why business people are scared. Um, I don't necessarily think it's the standard thing in the world, but also sometimes value is different between the people that appraise it. I mean, there is genuine objective value for the most part, but certain aspects are valued more. Maybe you have a home inspector who really loves vaulted ceilings and he's in the vaulted ceilings community and he knows that they go for a premium of an extra $1,000 per vaulted ceiling. And that adds a little bit of extra money on top. There are different rating agencies and you probably want to hire multiple of them so you can get an average, but there's going to be a little bit of discretion there. So some people may be afraid, well, no, actually a judge can just arbitrarily say the amount is the value is this much and you're actually overvaluing your assets. Just like the author, the, sorry, the judge here said that Mar-a-Lago was $18 million. Um, whether or not you 100% believe that, uh, non-prime real estate golf courses normally go for at least a million, two million dollars. Then, mind you, it's the uh, it's prime real estate. It has historic value. Uh, Trump just does weird stuff to the lands that he owns, so maybe it's worth more because of that. So, uh, I think it's an interesting conversation that needs to be had for sure about whether or not, if you're a business person, that you're gonna stay in New York because you sit there and you say wow, if I really piss off these New York guys, you know, even if I'm not, even if I'm doing something just a little bit on the edge, they may, they may come after me simply for not liking me. And now that they have this precedent about overinflating assets and it being fraud, mm, yeah, let's just stay away. And Kevin O'Leary even specifically says it's not really about the uh, Trump thing. Quote, I'm sorry her words fall on deaf ears here to everybody, he said. There's nothing she can say to justify this decision. And this has nothing to do with Trump. Nothing to do with Trump. Forget about Trump. This is not a Trump situation. This is a New York problem. And then Trump responded on Truth Social like, Oh, I love Kevin O'Leary. He's so great. Tell me it's like, the, telling it like it is. Business will flee in New York City. Blah, 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 blah. Who cares? Um, but the point being, it's something I hadn't considered. When I thought about that that lawsuit, most of the circles that I run in um, or listen to, they mention it and then they kind of breeze past it, whether that's because they think it's complete balooey or whether that's because they think it, it's politically motivated but there's still something there or whether or not because they've already tried it so many times because they think it's 100% legitimate. Like, you know, I listen to a, a lot of different people and this is not one of the more popular cases except for when the uh, verdict came out and the large sum of money came out. Besides that, it kind of really got blown over um, except for a few conservative commentators saying like, whoa, wait, hold on. What do you mean that Mar-a-Lago is only uh, $18 million? Other than that, most of the progressives didn't really care besides the the good little jokes you could get out of it at the very beginning or how it could hurt him and really hurt his financial situation. So it, it's been in there, but not as prominent as some of the other stories of the day. 
So we're going to end today with a, it's actually a very long article. So I want you to go read it yourself. It's from the nation and the headline reads what happened to the democratic majority. And the author is breaking down um, Roy Teixeira's and I'm trying to remember what his other uh, writer's name is. The gentleman who also helped him write about the uh, new emerging uh, Democrat majority in 2003-ish. Um, they, they talk about why the party has strayed from its base, what it could do to realign itself, and what it really needs to do to get those common workers back, the, the blue-collar workers, and get really in touch with the moderate American, the, and talk about the kitchen table issues rather than identity and trying to pursue a really neoliberal perspective where jobs are getting shipped away, but rather have a more union-based perspective where they keep U.S. jobs within the United States. So I, I think it's an interesting read. If you are a person who's a little bit dissuaded by the current state, of the Democratic Party, and you kind of like the old neocon ways. You kind of like the way that the Democratic Party used to be. Maybe you'll find that article very, very interesting. Maybe you want to pick up their book. I am not being paid for any type of promotion, and I don't honestly know if the author was being paid for the promotion or he was just doing a review on his own time, which means he did get a copy of the book, most likely. Um, but if you want to pick up their book and hear all about it, you can most definitely do that one, too. I believe it's called Where'd All the Democrats Go? Um, but it is worth a pretty interesting read. Then again, I broke it down at about like 15 seconds. Basically, the big ideas at play there um, and they do offer some solutions like dropping identity politics and everything, but come on, we live in a time where that coalition is working for them and they're some of the most invigorated voters and activists. So I highly, highly doubt they're going to drop that new coalition that they got any time soon. So let's jump to our daily delight. And this one comes from Stinger's Hub, the adorable albino born to white kangaroo in Hirschwerda, Germany. I am so sorry if I mispronounce your name, Hirschwerda, Germany. Quote, female kangaroo Snowflake has given birth to a white baby joey named Horswerda at Herdswerda Zoo. And the video goes on to show the little baby joey, also an albino like his mama, snuggling up in the little pouch. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos or you want to read any of today's articles, especially that last one I was talking about, the link will be in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, which I'm pretty sure is going to be retired here soon, as well as Podvine, and the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.